6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Post-Exile History. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And when Jesus quotes it, he adds, thy mind, right? All thy strength and all thy mind. So here it's uh, three things, and Jesus mentions four. But the point is, what does that mean? That's the greatest commandment. What does that mean? To love God with all thy heart, as opposed to all thy soul. Or with all thy How are those different? Those are terms we throw around rather loosely. These are actually, you see, the real you is not hardware, it's software, using modern vocabulary. And how do you determine the architecture of software? You can't do it, you can't determine the architecture by external behavior of software. You have to have the owner's manual. There are different words. Um, the word heart, cardia in the Greek. The word soul, suki in the, in the uh, Greek. Spirit, pneuma. And each one of these has a Hebrew equivalent also. Heart, soul, spirit, mind. There are places in the scripture. My wife spent 20 years tracking down every use of every Greek and Hebrew word that relates to any of these things, plus a few others. And made some, a number of discoveries that I uh, lean on heavily, just a, a, rather exciting. The word mind is the most leading of all, probably, because we think of the mind as brain. No, the mind is far more than the brain, even, even neurologically. But it actually is the channel for, uh, or willpower, it's, it's, it comes close, to, that's where you exercise volition. But if you look at the, the, the temple, the original tabernacle, we studied that when we were in Exodus. But when you get to Solomon, so God appears to Solomon and gives him some additional details. Some things are in the temple that are not in the tabernacle, namely, among other things, the two pillars, Yachin and Boaz, which carry nothing, they're pillars with no weight on top. And you have this strange porch there. Everything inside the temple is gold, everything outside is bronze. So everything outside is bronze because it, 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 uh, it can deal with sin and judgment and so forth. Inside is holy, is pure. That's the concept that underlies all this. And around the temple we also find there are these wooden chambers. And each one of these has some provocative possibilities. These, per, these wooden chambers were the private storage places of the priests, where they could store their personal implements, including idols or whatever. Their secret, private little chambers. And obviously there are cases in the scripture where they needed to be cleaned out. So do ours. See, the Holy of Holies, of course, is the inner thing. The holy place is the preceding to that. And then you have this porch, this strange place called the porch. Then you have the inner court and the outer court. These are the elements of architecture of the temple. My wife was the one that really explored the possibilities that these represent our architecture. The outer court represents, say, the body. 
the inner court, the soul. The heart is the holy place in a sense. And the spirit is in the holy of holies. And the great mystery, of course, is we know God dwells within us, right? Why is it we can't tell by your behavior? If God dwells in you, why is it that we are so honoring, so self-willed? Because that doesn't mean He's not dwelling in us, it means we're throttling His ability to, to work through us. And that's, what, that's why this is all so relevant. And we, it's, it, we are faced with our willpower. Are we choosing His ways? The making, are we making faith choices or self-choices? If we make faith choices, God will align our desires to our choices. But we choose first and feel afterwards if we're walking by faith. I'm oversimplifying. If, if my wife has done a trilogy, The Way of Agape, Be Transformed, and uh, Faith in the Night Seasons, that deal, that expand this in practical, personal walk terms. So that the Holy Spirit can shine out of us if we let Him. We constantly throttle Him by our self-will. It also leads to this interesting thing of the chambers, which look like they are correlative to the subconscious. And the subconscious is not a Freudian concept. He was very much absorbed with that. It actually goes way back to Augustine and earlier. It's in the scripture in a dozen places. I won't get into that debate here, but simply to say that you need to let the Holy Spirit help you clean out our closets, all of us. Because if not, they will invisibly affect our behavior. Well, Let's, get, let's move to some more fun stuff. The book of Esther. The name Esther means something hidden. I do understand some Hollywood stars have adopted that name. I wonder if they know what it really means. But anyway, in the kings of Persia, we're going to move down and pick up a guy by the name of Xerxes. He was the Ahasuerus of Esther. He's quite a character, very colorful character. The Greek translation of a very complicated name to pronounce is uh, the Greek translation of Xerxes. The English adaptation of the Hebrew is Ahasuerus, but the same guy, we believe. But he was a, um, quite an impulsive guy. Uh, he had a, very, very passionate extremes. He had gigantic ideas and very imperious temper. He actually built a bridge over the Hellespont, the Dardanelles. When a storm took it down, he ordered 300 uh, strokes of scourge on the sea for doing that and uh, threw a pair of fetters in the sea. And uh, then he had the builders of the bridge beheaded, as, as if it was their fault. There was a guy named Pythias who was a Lydian. He was offered a sum of uh, uh, five and a half million whatever uh, towards the expenses of the military expedition. Xerxes was so impressed that he sent the money back and gave him a handsome present. And yet, when Pythias wanted his eldest son excused from an expedition, Xerxes was so upset by that that he cut him into pieces and had his ar army march among the pieces. The picture you get of Xerxes, he's very chimerical. Up one time, down another, very hard to predict. And we see that temperament in the book of Esther. And so uh, he built a canal through the Isthmus of Athos. He built the bridge over the Hellespont, as I mentioned. And he is the, this is the wild man that is the ruler of the world during the days of Esther. Now the drama that occurs is second to few in all of history. The king throws a lavish royal banquet, and during that banquet he asks his queen Vashti to immodestly reveal herself in this drunken revelry 
uh, that's going on, and she refuses to do that, to her credit. But because she refuses to do that, she forfeits her crown. The other nobles are so incensed, and they feel that by her not obeying the king, that's going to cause all the wives to stop obeying their husbands. Got to make an example. So the king, he, Vashti, loses her place as his queen. But that sets the opportunity for Esther. And uh, she's an orphan Jewish girl, raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she ultimately gets selected as a replacement for Vashti. So she becomes the queen of Persia. Mordecai, who has raised her, is smart enough to warn her, don't let him know you're Jewish. So that he doesn't know that, and she doesn't call attention to that. For in her situation, that's going to be a time where it's going to be life-threatening. Now, there's a little incident that occurs early in the book that seems incidental, but it turns out to be very important. Mordecai somehow finds out about a plot against the king. And Mordecai tells Esther, and from that, this plot is thwarted, the guys are apprehended and killed, or whatever. And uh, it's just an incident, unrelated to everything else, and it turns out to be very pivotal. Mordecai never gets acknowledged for that, but God, it's one of those things, God's timing is phenomenal. We watch what happens here. To really understand what's going on here, you really need to know the rest of your Old Testament. Way back in 2 Samuel 16, there's one of the descendants of Saul that's harassing David. And his men want this guy squelched. And David says, no. Let him, if, if, if he's cursing, let him curse. He spares Shimei. Because he spares Shimei, one of his descendants is Mordecai, who's on the scene in Esther. Got the picture? It gets deeper than that. He was a, see, Mordecai was a descendant of Shimei, of the house of Kish, the father of King Saul. So Mordecai is a product of David's grace, right? Get the picture? Yeah, wow is right. As you understand how this all ties together, it really blows you away. Now he's going to ultimately confront the villain of the whole story, Haman. Haman is a result of Saul's failure to follow God's instructions. See, Haman hates Mordecai, because Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. So Haman, is, Haman has a vendetta against Mordecai, that's the plot of the whole story. But what you got to understand, see this whole story is the flesh versus the spirit. This goes way back to Jacob and Esau. Remember when they are struggling in the womb? And uh, Amalek descended from Esau. Amalek fought with Israel at Rephidim. And uh, the doom of the Amalek, Amalekites and Edom are foretold by Balaam in Numbers 24, by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, and the whole book of Obadiah deals with this. Edom represents the flesh versus the spirit. Now when we get to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he's instructed by God to destroy the Amalekites, which includes the king, Agag the king. Saul spares the king Agag, the king of the Malachites. And when Samuel finds that out, he's really upset. What's all this, what are all these sheep being? Saul has taken spoil rather than wipe it out. Because Saul didn't do what God told him to do, the kingdom is taken away from Saul. What you need to understand is that who is a descendant of Agag? King Agag, a guy by the name of Haman, with Joseph and Esther. 
So in Esther, you've got the result of Saul's failure to do what God said on the one hand, Haman, and you've got Mordecai, the result of David's grace. In this. Now, Haman is out to wipe out all the Jews. He's particularly after Mordecai, but he wants to wipe out all Jews in the kingdom. If he had succeeded, there'd be no temple. If he had succeeded, there'd be no Redeemer. So God's not going to let that happen. He's very invisibly behind the scenes, obviously. But Haman does succeed in getting the king to order the extermination of all Jews in the Persian Empire. Think about it. And once that's signed, the king himself can't change it. Whew. Now Mordecai realizes that the fate of the Jewish people hangs on Esther. Because she's the queen. She has access to the king to somehow do something about this. And for her to approach the king uninvited subjects her to the possible death. So she's taking a huge risk in the court procedures of the Persian Empire. But Mordecai says to her, Thou art come for such a time as this. He's convinced that she is where she is because God wants her, has her there for a destiny. And she finally, after being very concerned about this, she finally says, If I perish, I perish. She gets to the point where she's going to do this. She knows that she may not survive the ordeal. So she asks for three days of fasting and prayer, understandably. Then we get to the critical moment. Esther enters the inner court of the king. And at that moment, the king, seeing her, extends his scepter, which is inviting her to come. So she's gotten over the first hurdle. He didn't kill her for violating the procedures. And all she does, she's a very shrewd gal, or the spirits leading her, or maybe both. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet. She's going to throw a banquet. That's all she wants. Invite you, you and Haman to a banquet. The king says, okay, great, super. He's obviously a party animal, you know. And Haman, of course, because he's invited two things, this is great stuff. He is on an ego trip. Now, and then she invites them to a subsequent ba uh, banquet. And uh, what a day brings. Haman is so gloating because he's on the inside with the king and the queen. So the scripture says he prepares a gallows for Mordecai. That's an erroneous translation. We think of a gallows as a place that you hang somebody. The translators of the King James, that's the way they visualize the, the Hebrew word. Uh, the words actually imply impaling on a tree. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans really ran with it later, but the Persians invented it. And what's really talking about here is impaling. He's going to impale Mordecai on a tree, like a crucifixion. But while he's building this so-called gallows or whatever, it happens that night the king can't sleep. And when he can't sleep, he does a smart thing. I don't know about you, I do the same thing. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I find if I try to roll over, I don't go to sleep right. So what I get up and I read for a little while, half an hour, whatever. Well, that's apparently what this king did. He, he picked up the chronicles, the journal of what's going on. And as he's reading, he discovers something that really bothers him. He discovers that he is reminded of this plot where he was going to be killed, and Mordecai apparently thwarted this on his behalf. 
and he realizes Mordecai has never been rewarded for that incredible gesture for the king. So he's, that's on his mind. <laughs> so the next morning, Haman's in the court, and the king comes out. He asks, he asks Haman, Haman, what would you do for someone, what should I do for somebody I really want to honor? Haman, of course, jumps to the conclusion, he's talking about me. <laughs> so he said, well, if you really want to honor him, you put him on your robe, give him your signet, put on your crown, and parade him through the town for a day. Let him be king for a day, and, and parade him through, the, so all the people will know that you're honoring this person. Mordecai, uh, I mean, Haman obviously visualizing himself in that role. Let everybody see me and bow down. I'm the king for a day. Can I? And the king says, good idea. Do so for Mordecai. Ah. <laughs> so this backfires, of course. And uh, that, of course, humiliates. That makes Haman even more upset, but he also makes him nervous. He's getting advice from his friends. Hey, buddy, you may not realize it, but you are in deep yogurt, you know. So the, the second banquet, when uh, Esther has the uh, king and Haman present, king says, okay, what's on your heart? She says, I'd like my life to be spared. And the king is shocked. What do you mean your life being spared? She explains, she's Jewish, and he signed this decree of all Jews killed. And he, of course, is so shook up by that, he is so shook by this that he can't even respond. He, in fact, says, wait a minute. He, he goes out on the balcony to compose himself as he thinks through the implications of this. He begins to realize not only his beloved queen is Jewish, but he realizes that Haman engineered this. He's a victim. So he's really, he's out on the balcony for a bit. While he's out, Haman realizes his life's at risk and he falls on his knees in front of the couch that Esther's on, pleading for his life. Haman realizes he's in jeopardy. As he does so, when the king walks back in, he misconstrues, he thinks he's attacking the queen. And he's really upset now. <laughs> so Haman falls on the couch to plead. The king misconstrues the move and orders Haman hanged, or more precisely, impaled. And he gets impaled on the very gallows that he built for, guess who? Mordecai. It gets worse. Haman's entire estate is this cheat to the crown, and it is set under Mordecai's supervision. <laughs> Do you see a little irony here? Isn't God great? Now, the king can't undo the decree that's gone throughout the realm. It's already a done deal but he's regretted it. So all he can do, the next best thing, he issues a second degree, a decree, which authorizes the Jews to defend themselves in 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. He also instructs all the magistrates of the king to assist them. So the Jews, uh, obviously, and they, cel they celebrate this holy event every year at the Feast of Purim. Purim is the word, Hebrew word for lot because they cast lots to determine the date earlier in the story. An incidental thing, I won't go through the details, because I'm sure the, the text is probably hard to read on the screen, but the ten sons of Haman are also uh, crucified, or impaled. And as you read the Persian names and try to decipher them, you discover 
They, the ten names mean curious self or busy body, weeping self, self-pity, assembled self, self-mobilized, self-sufficient, generous self, spendthriftiness or self-indulgence, weak self, self-consciousness, strong self-assertiveness, insisting on one's own way, uh, preeminent self, ambition, and so on, bold self, imprudence, dignified self, prude, haughtiness, what have you, and pure self, worst of all, self-righteousness. But it's interesting that the names of his ten sons exemplify self-traits that stand in the way of a relationship with God. All of us need to hang our sons of Haman uh, in our lives. But let's move on. The book of Esther is often disparaged by some. Even Luther said it shouldn't be in the Bible because the name of God does not appear in the book. Well, that's kind of interesting. But see, the word Esther means something hidden. So let me share with you some surprises. There are hidden codes in the book of Esther. There are five acrostics that are well known among Talmudic scholars. And I published those in our news journal many years ago. And one of our subscribers is a rabbi by the name of Yaakov Ramsel who sent me a note. He says, by the way, Chuck, there's three others you don't know about. Let me share them with you. In Esther verse 1 verse 20, there's an acrostic it spells uh, yad heh vav heh, which is the, the, the unpronounceable name of God. It's the initial letters of these four words because the event that's being alluded to there is initial, but it spells God's name backwards because He's turning back the counsels of man. Okay, cute little thing. Esther 5, again we have initial letters because God's initiating the action, but it, there, it's, this time it's spelled forward because God is ruling and causing Esther to act. Kind of curious. Esther chapter 5, again we have yad heh the final letters of the words, because Haman's end is approaching. They're written backwards because God is overruling Haman's gladness and turning back Haman's counsel. And in Esther 7, 7, you've got again yad heh that is uh, it's final because Haman's end had come, and forward because God is ruling and bringing about the end that he had determined. Now these interpretations are the rabbinic interpretations, why they're forward or backward, first whether they're a forward acrostic or a backward acrostic, and whether they're spelled forward or backward. You see there's four different things here. And so the pairing, see the, the first two, the initial letters are used because the facts are initial, and the last two are final letters because the facts are final. The first one's backward, the second one's forward, and, and the third one's backward, the fourth one's forward. The ones that are backward are gen, deal with the Gentiles, the ones that are forward deal with the Israelites. Because Israelites read that direction, the Gentiles that direction. There's also a case of introversion. The words spoken concerning a queen versus words spoken by a queen, or the words spoken by Haman, or the words concerning Haman. There's a interest, there's structure every place you look here. There's even one where King Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? This is when the king finds out that she's, she's under threat here. It's interesting that in the Hebrew of that phrase, if you, you find the word uh, I am, yeah, okay. In Esther chapter 1, verse 3, there's an equidistant letter sequence of the interval of eight. Interval of eight. If you look at those letters, you find the word Mashiach. And it's eight. Just as 666 is the number of Satan, 888 is the number of, of, of Messiah. There's also another one in Esther 4, verses 7, in which it spells Yeshua, Jesus. And then there's another one in the intervals of 7 in Esther 4, verse 2, that is El Shaddai, the Almighty. But uh, Ramsel 
mentions another one. So chuck this one you'll get a kick out of. This is an interval of six. Okay, you ready for this? An interval of six, in the Hebrew it says, Haman and Satan stink. <laughs> Something hidden. Now you certainly don't use those to build doctrine, but they're, in, in cryptology would be called authentication codes. The little hints there that it's by design. Those things don't happen by accident. You can quickly convince yourself that there's no way it could happen randomly. The book of Nehemiah, rebuilding of the city. In this case we're going to move up to Artaxerxes the first. Artaxerxes called Langemanus that we've already talked about a little bit. And uh, as we mentioned, you know, Esther's the end of Ezra. Then we have the book of Nehemiah, during which we find the decree of Artaxerxes, which of course triggers the seven weeks of Daniel. And uh, so we have the various prophets also supplementing that. Something as you get through Ezra and Nehemiah that I like to point out for your own understanding, there are people that try to build, on the one hand people make mistakes by not being precise enough in the Scripture, but there's also a, a corollary type of error where you make precision where there isn't precision intended, splitting hairs so to speak. There are people that try to build huge cases about the term Jews versus Israelite. The Jew represents Judah and not Israel. There are some places where that's true, there's some places where it's not. I want to alert you to something. After the Babylonian captivity, the terms Jew and Israelite are used interchangeably. I'm asserting that. I want you to check it out yourself. Ezra calls the returning remnant Jews eight times. He calls them Israel forty times. They're used interchangeably. All Israel, and these are in Ezra 2, 3, 8, 10, and so forth. Lots of places. Nehemiah also uses Jews 11 times, Israel 22 times. See the point I'm trying to make? They're used interchangeably. All Israel being back in the land, Nehemiah 12, verse 47, and so on. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.